Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you? Hi, Alan. Doing very well today. How are you? I'm good. I survived a hurricane. I'm glad you did. California had its first hurricane in 84 years. Also, during during the hurricane, there was an earthquake in L.A. So my goodness, people have are making up all sorts of names, calling it a I can't a a hurricane or something like that. Uh huh. So just be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for that. Yeah, our area got four inches of rain in about a three hour period of time. Lots of lots of flooding and trees down and. Lots of exciting things. But we're not here to talk about California. We're here to talk about Israel. I have to ask you a few very um, current events questions. Uh, We have not had any hurricanes or earthquakes this week. And the weather? The weather? uh, You know, it's summertime. It's hot. (laughs) Just the usual hot. Just the usual. But it's extremely hot, or is it just normal hot? Uh, No, it has been unusually hot. Um, yeah, I heard a a lot of interesting comments about that. I mean, people even in the north of Israel who will say that they generally, you know, don't need even air conditioning during the summer because, you know, in the evening things cool off and there's a breeze that this year that was not the case. And they were, you know, running air conditioning even while they were sleeping, which is sort of unheard of here. Um, and in Jerusalem where it's known for being, dry in comparison to Tel Aviv and other coastal places that are very humid. In Jerusalem, it's been quite humid. So yes, it has been unusually hot and sticky, but what can you do? So as people have said, or asked me, you know, is the hurricane that took place uh, part of global warming? I said, well, it happened 84 years ago. So was there global warming 84 years ago? I don't know. I wasn't here 84 years ago. But historically, it's a pretty significant storm and uh, lots of road damage and closures and such. So you and I, we can continue to talk about the weather. That's a very easy thing to talk about. But I need to ask you, some. there's some critical stuff going on with the Knesset, even though it's a summer break. Um, there's some, mm-hmm. I would call it lobbying between the ultra-Orthodox parties and the current coalition about some of the needs that they have. Anything new on that end? So I think lobbying is a fair enough term, yes. So these uh, the ultra-Orthodox parties, just to clarify and remind everyone, are in the coalition, right? They are part of the coalition. And that means that they are expected to vote along party lines. Uh, for example, with all of the judicial reform laws that have happened over the past uh, almost eight months and are expected to resume again just after the Jewish holidays. However, at this particular juncture, another uh, subject of law has come up, and that is the exemption from conscription law for the ultra-Orthodox community. So since the creation of the state of Israel, there have been various laws to allow for ultra-Orthodox 
men to continue their traditional Jewish studies uh, in lieu of military service, right? Even though military service is mandatory for both men and women in Israel, there have always been some type of exception for uh, for the ultra-Orthodox. And currently, that law, or until recently, I should say, that law was that up until the age of 26, if an ultra-Orthodox man stayed enrolled full-time in Jewish studies in a recognized yeshiva or place of Jewish studies, then they would be exempt from the army. The issue is that not all ultra-Orthodox men want to continue their full-time studies now until the age of 26, right? If, for example, a guy is married at 24 and starting a family and wants to study part-time and work part-time, he then loses his military exemption because he's not 26, he's only 24, and he has not served in the army at all. And so he, in theory, would be drafted with the law that was in place until recently. Um, So uh, there have been now already for several years attempts to to amend that law. There were some versions, in fact, that were passed, but then struck down by the high court. Um, And now the there's no law as far as i understand it that is currently in effect the previous one has expired but there is an extension period um that technically would go until march of 2024 uh to work things out before you know all there would be no law in place and then in theory all ultra orthodox men from the age of 18 would automatically you know um, immediately be drafted uh, so until March is the sort of longest deadline for figuring something out. Um, but the ultra-Orthodox parties are saying that they will not continue to vote along coalition lines for the judicial reform issues until uh, this issue of conscription is resolved. So there's now an even shorter sort of timeline to try and get this buttoned up by the end of the Jewish holidays, right, which is when the judicial reform uh, law process in theory would renew. So let me let me break in for a second because you've yeah. made a couple of comments. Um, so you, I, I used the word lobbying before. Um, I might say uh, negotiation under threat of other things, and the threat is the judicial reform legislation. But you mentioned that the previous agreement was struck down by the high court. So has has part of the debate been and the whole judicial reform business been that this that the high court is at odds with the ultra orthodox community and that's where some of this is coming from? I I I, I would not say that it's that the court is at odds with the community. The court when it struck down the law, said that it was because it was too sweet, uh, sweeping and it created inequality. Um, you know, for, um, for a man at the age of 26 to no longer be eligible for conscription is one thing. But to say that at much younger ages, a healthy, presumably able-bodied Israeli citizen doesn't have to serve like all of the other 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old Israelis uh, is a little bit harder 
to to justify in terms of right equality under the law. And so when with with the idea to lower the age significantly, I think that's where the courts felt, as I said, that it was too sweeping and and unequal. So two things. One, this uh, right now where the conscription law stands, the idea would be to, yes, lower the age significantly. Right now, the drafts, I believe, says 22. So that's a big, you know, jump down. With that, there are uh, various other parts of the law that have to do with national service and different types of volunteerism and things that um, certain numbers of members of the ultra-Orthodox community would be expected to do to contribute to Israeli society, but it is a very significant change. And for that reason, um, the, the plan is to have written into the law that it cannot be struck down by the court, right? Similar to the um the reasonableness clause that was passed as a basic law right the kind of law that until till now in israel's history the court has never uh overturned I, um, I, I, they would I, do something sort of similar so i don't want to in- interrupt you but you've you're re- really now hitting on several things that i think are causing the the challenges within the general israeli society and it seems to me that the courts seem to be the the point of disconnect or the point of challenge for one part of the country versus the other part of the country. And you've already just demonstrated two examples of where people don't like the influence of the courts. So that, if if I hear you correctly, that's really pretty much what the whole judicial reform legislation is about. And we know that, or I, at least I've been told or read, that the Supreme Court is going to come together on September the 12th as a full-bodied court. You mentioned a couple weeks ago that it's a 15-body, which has not happened before in Israel, to to vote down or accept this new basic law. So if, if as an amateur observer of what goes on in Israel, uh, what I'm hearing from not just from you, but from others, is that there's really a conflict with part of the country's interpretation of what responsibilities the courts have on day-to-day life in Israel. Am I close, wrong, um, reaching for the stars? Um, I don't know if I would agree with that analysis. I mean, the court's place is to check the parliament. we, We don't really have three branches in Israel. While on paper we do, it's really much more like we have two. We have the we have the government, we have the parliament, we have the court. And um, so when the government passes laws, the only way to sort of determine if they are in conflict with other of Israel's values as a society, I won't say unconstitutional because we don't have a constitution, right? But if they are in in conflict with our values, if they are innately uh, unequal, if they are unreasonable, if they right, if they don't meet those certain tests, that that is the court's place to step in. Now, 
there is something quite political to that because in most cases where the court has stepped in, it has been to the um, chagrin of the more right-leaning parts of the Israeli Israeli politics um, because the courts have historically sort of upheld the rights of minorities um, and uh, and really, and really insisted upon that concept of equality under the law, right? Um, and not wanting to make exceptions for any certain, you know, groups of people of, of not allowing, not having them be subject to the law in an equal way. Um, whether that's in conflict with with lawmaking, I don't know. Ideally, the two would work hand in hand, right? Why would lawmakers want to be passing laws that aren't equal, that aren't reasonable, that aren't, you know, upholding Israel's values. But those are all judgment calls, which is why judges are the ones that make that. That was a really good, uh, you know, a review of my off-the-cuff comment. Um, but I, I, again, I, we could probably talk about this for a long time, and we will continue to talk about it. But I, I have to ask another trivial question. You know, when I heard that the Knesset was going on summer break, I thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about because they're on break. But I'm following every day in the news that there are things going on. So can can you speak to the fact that they're on break, but yet so much stuff is taking place? Well, yes. I mean, they they are on break. But on the other hand, the country continues to go on, right? Life continues to go on. And there are some things that need to be dealt with. For example, um, unfortunately, over the past, I guess, four days, we've had two different terror attacks inside Israel. Um, And the security cabinet was not scheduled to meet in its normal schedule of meetings again until September 10th. Now that You actually, you can you hear me now? Yeah, you actually muted for a second. Okay, so, sorry. Am I unmuted now? Good. I don't know what I did. Um, right, that September 10th will still be during the, the long break, which doesn't end until after the end of the Jewish holidays, but as a special, you know, cabinet, and obviously something as, as important as the security cabinet, they were scheduled to meet until September 10th, but they called to move that meeting up even sooner because of these incidents. So they'll be meeting a week from today, which is which is also interesting just in terms of thinking about, you know, that the the cabinet is made up of real people, most of whom are probably right now on vacation with their families, some in Israel, some outside of Israel. So when they said, okay, we need to meet ASAP, what is the soonest we can get everybody in one room? A week from today was was the answer. Um I think people recognize that they hold very important positions. And that means that if they need to cut vacations short, you know, to to have a meeting or do any of the other business of running a country, then obviously people will do that. And the country pays for their flight cancellations and rescheduling of their vacation. I, I cannot speak to that specifically because I don't know with certainty, but I can say uh, something that uh, struck me today 
um, as I was, I was thinking over, you know, with this, what we talked about just now that the ultra-Orthodox parties have said that they, you know, sort of won't be willing to keep voting as expected until the conscription laws are passed. You know, it's it's not likely, but there is an outside possibility that they that those two parties that are in the coalition could um, uh, could, you know, break up the government if they say, OK, that's it. You know, we're out. That could break up the government. And so I needed to remind myself of how many seats they actually hold. So it's, it's 18 seats. Uh, between the two ultra-Orthodox parties that are part of the coalition. But when I was looking up these numbers, I also saw that there are, as we know, 64 members of the current coalition. You know how many of them are ministers right now? Isn't it like 36? It's 32 of them, not including the deputy ministers. That is an awful lot of ministers. Um, we didn't even used to have that many offices that one could be a minister of. I really think that half of these ministries have just been made up. Um, but apropos the subject of paying for their flights, right? once you hold the title of minister, your pay grade goes considerably up from the already, you know, I think, quite generous salary of a member of parliament. So um, never discussed. So just throwing that out there. We've never discussed the salaries and benefits of members of Knesset. So maybe we should do that at a future. We definitely could do an episode on that. But I just, I want to correct you for, no, not correct you. I want to add to what you said, um, that this lobbying by the 18 members of Knesset who are on the religious right side, I don't think that they would leave the government because they've gotten the best deals so far of any Knesset in Israel's history in terms of the benefits and the power that they've received. So I don't really see them leaving the government. Um, I think that you are probably right. I would add to that, though, one, um, it is not unthinkable that they would sit in another constellation of government um, as well. Right. The the ultra orthodox parties historically are sort of very clear in their interests and very clear in their needs, which makes them easier in some ways to negotiate with and to have in your camp because you know right what you're going to have to concede and what you're going to have to to give them to keep them happy and on board. Um, and so a a right-wing government like this one is not the only type of government in which the ultra-Orthodox parties actually would have a voice and, and could be an active part. So that's one. And two, I just wanted to say that um, it's very interesting to keep in mind that the ultra-Orthodox parties, these two parties in particular that we're referring to, Shas and United Torah Judaism, UGJ, are not the only religious right parties that are in this government. So we have this very interesting dynamic of the other quite religious parties um, who are not ultra-Orthodox. They're religious Zionist parties and, and the Jewish Power Party, I would put sort of in the same camp and, and Noam Party as well, um, for whom military service is ex an extremely high value. Right, they are very observant Jews who who generally all serve in the the army, 
And so they are not particularly happy about the current plans for the for the exemption law either. Um, so so you have a very interesting dynamic of what does it mean to be religious? Wow. So th- this is a great topic. We should probably put this on future podcasts because there's a lot going on there. You know, when you said that Shas and United Torah Judaism were very, almost in a sense, liberal compared to the other branches of Orthodox religious Zionism parties, I was kind of taken aback by that. You didn't you didn't use the word liberal. I did. Yes, then, I would not use the word liberal. <laughs> you I mean you mean in terms of who they might be willing to yes. sit in a government with. Yes. So I don't think it's about liberal. I think it's about pragmatic, right? And if those ultra-Orthodox parties know that they can negotiate for the things that they want, the things that are beneficial to their members and their constituencies, they'll do that. Um the the other very religious parties, like for example Otsmayudit and uh, uh, the religious Zionism parties, their views are sort of too diametrically opposed to those of the left wing parties. They really couldn't ever sit in a government together, or they'd be highly unlikely to. But the the issue, so to speak, for the ultra-Orthodox parties is not politics, right? It's the bread and butter for their communities. Do they have enough housing? Are they allowed to study and, and instead of joining the army if that's their choice, right? Are, do they have stipends that allow their communities, the an extremely high portion of whom live below the poverty line, to get, you know, the services that they need, food support, et cetera, et cetera. So, so what they're looking for from a government and for a government to do is is different, by and large, than what the religious Zionist parties are looking for. That's really that's been very helpful to hear that, and I think we should talk more about that into the future. Uh, in the in, I don't mean to cut you off on that because I think that's a very important look at the country as a whole and how it's been broken up by the different interest groups. Uh, with the few minutes that we have left in our designated time together. I always have to ask you about cultural events, food, um, entertainment, anything new on the those horizons, the cultural event horizons? Well, I can tell you about the cultural events that I have set it as my goal to visit in the next week. So hopefully by next week I'm, I can report to you on how it actually was. Um, I think maybe... Uh, this time about a year ago, we talked about the food truck festival. It's been happening now in Jerusalem for, I don't know exactly, this could be as much as the fourth year. Um, and it's, as it sounds, it's like a festival of food trucks. They're, they're actually, um, they're not food trucks, but that's their full-time job. They're, they're restaurants who come for you know, three days or whatever their set assigned amount of time is and do, you know, from that restaurant, but a a special menu of three, four, five dishes that they'll serve from this uh, food truck for those specified evenings. So um, it is happening again this summer in Jerusalem as it has for those past couple of years. I haven't been yet, so I have to get there before it finishes up. I think this and, and the next are the last couple weeks. So the time is drawing short. Interestingly, 
Um, and I don't know whether this coincides with politics or what the factors were in making the decision. In past years, the food truck festival has been a mix of both kosher and non-kosher restaurants um, and a mix of meat and dairy restaurants at the same time, leaving you know customers the ability to choose for themselves if and to what extent and in what way they want to observe you know kosher uh, following. Uh, this year, all of the restaurants that were selected are kosher. There are no non-kosher restaurants that were included, which is interesting because we do have quite a number of non-kosher restaurants in Jerusalem. Um, and they also separated out that there were weeks that were only dairy and weeks that were only meat. So, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't bother me as a customer of the kosher ones, but I do sort of wonder why it was done that way. And, and I hope that it is not taking away from the experience for people who would have liked to have partake of the non-kosher restaurants. Well, I can only say in response to that, only in Israel would you have a <laughs> time when you could have kosher and non-kosher and dairy and meat, meat meals um, and a food truck experience. <laughs> Israel is exceptional in so many ways. So many ways. And I think that's a great way for us to conclude today, knowing that Israel is exceptional in many different ways. And we'll continue to share some of those unique um milestones that Israel does achieve or not achieve uh, in future weeks. So Liz, thank you again for your insights today and thank all of our listeners for listening to Israel Rebound and looking forward to more insights from you next week. You got it. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.